as we are looking at this week of Thanksgiving, thankfulness is obviously a learned behavior. Otherwise, otherwise, how would you explain the need to tell our children over and over again, say thank you? <laughs> I don't know how many times throughout the raising of our children I've told them to use their manners. And the reason for all this re reinforcement and the reason that it's necessary is that as sinful people, we are especially selfish. At our core, we feel that we deserve to have the things that we have. We feel that we are entitled on Thursday, we will collectively celebrate Thanksgiving as a nation. And I've always wondered, who are atheists thanking during Thanksgiving? Mother Earth? The universe? Their family or friends? Well, I'll tell you who the original, uh, original celebrants of Thanksgiving, uh, the pilgrims, were thanking. They were thanking God. For the 102 survivors of the Mayflower, they had many things to be thankful for. A native named uh, Squanto had come, and when they arrived, he met with them. He spoke English, and uh, he helped them forge an alliance with the uh, Wampanoag tribe there. They were also able to finally harvest the things that they had planted. They had been using all of their supplies up until that time. Uh, and so they were finally able to go out in the fields and bring that harvest in and eat instead of just gathering from the wilderness. They were also thankful that they could worship freely. Back in Europe, they had been persecuted. And so now that they were in this new country with this new settlement, they could worship freely. The uh, pilgrim chronicler uh, Edward Winslow wrote, By the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. And so they were thanking God for the things that God had provided them in their journey, in their new lives. Thanksgiving, in many ways, is like Mother's Day. It's not something that we should just celebrate once a year. And especially for the Christian, it should be a daily occurrence, thanking God for all the things that we have. However, the world, our flesh, and the devil don't want you to continually thank God. This unholy trifecta wants you to stay focused on your own navel, always asking the question, what's in it for me? And so in order to combat this propensity, I would like to offer you three reminders that will help you have a proper attitude as you belly up to your turkey or your mashed potatoes on Thursday. Uh, the first reminder is from this passage that Rachel just read. And the uh, following two points are from related passages. First, thanks comes easily when we recognize the servant-master relationship. First, as we look at this passage in Luke, we must recognize that Jesus is focusing on the way that we should react as servants, not the way that God acts as our master. Because some would say here, look at God, he doesn't even want to give thanks for anything that we've done. And we know that's not the case, you know, from passages like, well done, good and thankful servant, where he thanks you for serving uh, the way that you did. Instead, he says, will any of you do this? He's using an example of us as people. Would we relate this way to our own servants? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a similar passage in Matthew 7, 9, where Jesus is talking about how God relates to children, and he compared it to fathers. Would you as a father give your son a stone if he asked for bread? 
And so Jesus uses our own way of relating to certain groups of people in this life to make a point that God relates to us above and beyond our own limited capacity to treat one another in a correct way. And so what is Jesus trying to say to his disciples here? How are they supposed to think about their mission as servants? How are they supposed to manage their own expectations of receiving praise or a reward for their work? Well, first and foremost, they must realize that they are unworthy servants, that we are unworthy servants. And the word that Jesus uses here in verse 10 that we translate as unworthy into English actually carries a much stronger sense in the original language. It means useless, unprofitable, or worthless. And so I laughed when I saw that translation because I thought, I should use this at my next staff meeting, right? Hey team, you're useless. Don't expect any kind of thanks from me or anyone else. However, Jesus' statement here is actually not meant to bring us down. It's not meant to make us feel depressed. It actually is meant to make us feel relieved. Because frankly, we are useless. We are unprofitable. Without the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, we would not be able to accomplish anything. We see this clearly in the lives of the disciples during the three years that they spent following Jesus, which was before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They fought over who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They tried to prevent little children from coming to Jesus and having him bless them. They tried to keep blind men from coming to Jesus and being healed. They fled Jesus at the most crucial moment. And after Jesus died, I imagine they were feeling pretty depressed about their performance as ones who were supposed to be the most loyal followers in his inner circle. And I doubt that any of them were patting themselves on the back or congratulating each other for a job well done. But this was the point. This is what Jesus was trying to show them. This is why he gave the Holy Spirit after he was gone. Because they were useless without him. In John 15, 5, he told the parable of the vine. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Scott. Even before I was a Christian, I did some good things. I mean, I told the truth. I didn't steal. I was generally a nice person. I gave to the poor. How can Jesus say here that we can do nothing apart from him? Well, it all depends upon the foundation that you're building on. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 10b and 11. It says, Let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so anything that you build on another foundation is worthless. Only that which is built upon the Lord will last. Because in eternity, no one will remember all the nice charity work of the non-Christians, the unbelievers. In fact, even a Christian's work can be burned up if he's not using the right materials. If he's not using 
uh, gems and gold and precious uh, metals. Instead, is using wood, hay, and stubble. All those things can be burned up that are done in the arm of the flesh. Done by my own efforts rather than done through the Holy Spirit, rather than done in Christ. And so why should we be thankful in light of this knowledge and this understanding? First, I'm thankful because I was chosen as a servant at all, especially of how, in light of how useless I am. Secondly, I'm elated that my acceptance is not based on my own ability to get it right. That'd be pretty depressing. I would not be thankful for that. If it was dependent on me and how I reacted to every situation and how well I preached and how well I lived my life and how well I resisted sin, none of us would be thankful. We'd all be depressed, right? And so my main task is to discern what God is saying to me through the word and by the prodding of the Holy Spirit and then just to obey that. I don't have to be some evangelistic genius. I don't need to start a new reformation. I just need to do as I'm told when I happen to succeed, then I will thank God for that. And it's well known in the end that God receives all the glory anyways. However, did you know that you will get to share in that glory? Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. It says, God has chosen you from the beginning to be saved by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and by faith in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Thanksgiving, as you're listing off all those things that you are thankful for, be sure to include the reality that God has chosen you to be one of his servants. Second, thanks comes easy when we recognize God's sovereignty. The word sovereign happens to be one of the most important words in regard to our theology, which is the study of God. It means that someone possesses supreme and ultimate power. The fact that God has supreme and ultimate power over the entire universe is something to be very thankful for, especially in light of the alternatives that have been offered. Take, for instance, the theology of the Nordic gods, which has become very popular lately because of the Marvel movies, right? We see Thor, we see Loki, we see these different gods fighting one another. And these deities were always at odds with one another. None of them had supreme authority or supreme power. They were always battling one another for supremacy. And I could feasibly find myself on the right side of the battle one moment with the promise of great eternal riches from this particular God, and the next moment I could find myself on the opposite side, being punished and tormented. You just hope you better pick the right God. And so it is not the same thing with the Lord Almighty. He has no equal. He has no fear. He shall win every battle. His will will be accomplished. Now with everything that God has going on in regard to running the universe, we might begin to think and wonder, does he really think about me that often? We might even wonder what our purpose is on this giant rock as we dip, drift through space and time, especially when we see how messed up things are all around us. 
We may wonder, did God make some kind of mistake? Look at the world. He obviously can't be too happy with the way that his creation turned out, can he? Perhaps he isn't that powerful and supreme after all. Well, the Bible addresses this question on many levels. First, let us consider God's purpose in creating us. We were just discussing this last Monday evening uh, for the Brotherhood. And in Romans 11.36, it gives us a concise explanation as to God's purpose, why he did things the way he did. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And so this verse shows us that we are created for the Lord. That's your purpose. You were created for the Lord. And by the way, the Lord wasn't created for us, right? And the reason that we were created was to bring glory to his name. Proverbs 16, 4 expands on it when it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for a day of trouble. Well, wait a second. How does all the wickedness in the world glorify God's name? And by the way, to glorify just means to make bigger or more praiseworthy. God's dealing with the wicked shows us just how righteous he is. His dealings with those who are repentant show us how merciful he is. His dealings with the weak shows us how strong he is. Any attribute that humans exalt and praise is seen perfectly in God. However, these attributes would not be known unless there was an object for them to be directed toward. And so he created us in order to have an object to direct these attributes toward so that his name could be glorified. We could see how merciful he was. We could see how just he was. We could see how loving he was. I wouldn't know how excellent a parent that you could be unless you had children. I wouldn't know how honest you were unless you were put in situations where you were forced to decide to tell the truth or a lie. And so too with God, he has placed himself in immeasurably, uh, immeasurable situations where his perfect attributes are seen more clearly. All these situations that he's placed himself in, in relating to you, shows how good he is. And so, every situation, no matter how it seems to us in our limited understanding, has that as its main objective. And we can give thanks and rejoice that this is the case. Otherwise, our existence would be absolutely meaningless. Meaningless. And so God gives purpose to your struggles. God gives purpose to your pain, to your sorrow, to your joy, because without it, it's all just randomness out there. We're just a big accident. Atoms colliding with one another. If this is all just a cosmic accident, then we should, in the words of Paul the Apostle, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just do whatever you want. This is all there is. Don't worry about the future. It's all meaningless. Next we see, and finally, that thanks comes easy when we acknowledge God's providence. 
This is the final reason that I'm looking at, at least in this ser- sermon here. And we give thanks for Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh means God, our provider. And I would venture to say that the majority of prayers that are going to be offered around the Thanksgiving table on this Thursday will have this as its core, this thanks. Thank you, God, for the food. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my job. In these prayers, we recognize where everything comes from. Now, for many people out there that are going to be offering these prayers, those prayers are just going to be lip service. With their mouths, people will thank God because it's the thing to do on Thanksgiving, right? You pray and thanks God. For, for, actually, for some people, it might be the only time of year that they actually pray. But with their hearts, they will not believe it. They won't believe that God is providing all of these things. And after all, God isn't the one down at the office, right, putting in the hours so that the mortgage gets paid. God isn't the one who changed the countless diapers and fed the never-ending appetites of my growing children. God isn't the one who made the pecan pie. And they would have a point if they were the masters of their own destinies. However, the Bible makes it clear that that is not the case. Paul is speaking to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 27 through 28, and he says, God intended that all men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even your ability this morning to get up from that pew and to go out there and to grab a piece of pie and enjoy that time together is from the Lord. It's part of his providence. And the key to joy is recognizing that. That's where we find joy. When my kids were young, I sat them down at the dinner table and I placed a big stack of $100 bills in front of them. And I said, this is how much I make in a month. And they were so excited. They're like, woo, let's go to Disneyland or something like that, right? And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Well, wait just a minute here. First, we have some obligations to take care of. And with that, I started making separate piles. One pile for tithe, one pile for mortgage, one pile for utilities, gas for the vehicles, their school tuition, food, car insurance, missionaries we give to. And by the time I had dispersed all those to the different piles, we had about $300 left sitting in front of us, right? And their faces looked super dejected. They're like, oh, only $300. And I said, now you can understand why I can't give you everything that you ask for. And you will recognize how much I actually do give you through the other bills that I pay. Because all this stuff doesn't just take care of itself. God wants us to realize how much it is that he gives us through seemingly insignificant things that we take for granted, like the sun shining in the sky, or clean air, or relatively good health. And so in conclusion this morning, a life of slavery, to be God's slave, doesn't seem very attractive, right? Imagine evangelizing people with that message. Hey, you should trust in Jesus and follow him so you can be his slave. You know? Probably wouldn't go over well in our culture. 
especially when we think of slavery, mainly in regard to the South, this culture before the Civil War, where hundreds of thousands of people were taken from their homelands in Africa. They made this dangerous voyage with many of them dying, many of them in cramped quarters where they couldn't even sit up tall, auctioned off, taught a new language, punished for speaking their native dialect, having their African names replaced with slave names, poor housing conditions, sleeping on the floor, minimal shelter for protection against the elements, sometimes 10 people in a single hut, inadequate food, weekly food allowance of cornmeal and dried fish, maybe with a little bit of pork, no tables, no chairs to sit on, ill-fitting clothing that were made of very coarse material, many times no shoes, forced labor in the fields, punished for not working hard enough, no pay or inheritance, no formal education, no personal freedoms or privacy. It was illegal for them to marry, and due to the high infant mortality rate of the slaves, the average life expectancy of a southern slave was only 22 years old, many of them dying well before midlife. If this is what Jesus meant to be a slave, then I'll just take my chances in the world, right? But the main problem with that line of thinking is that the unbeliever's not free either. They are a slave as well. Bob Dylan said one good thing. He said, you got to serve somebody. <laughs> Whether it's the devil or the Lord, you're going to serve somebody. And they are slaves to the devil and their sinful nature. And the devil does, by the way, have the power to give you some temporal pleasures. And he can reward you if you will reject Christ, if you will do his will instead. But the question that comes to mind is, what kind of slave master is God? Well, for one, he does not force you to be his slave. And in that way, we are more like bonded servants, those who choose to work for the master. Secondly, for those who follow Christ's commands, he changes their relationship from servant to friend, then from friend to adopted child, then from adopted child to royal heir. We see this in John 15. Every Christian loves to thank God that they are a child of the king. They love to think about their inheritance as Christian royalty. But you don't hear many people singing songs or praying about how thankful they are that they are Christ's slave. The word slave, or its equivalent, is seen 130 times in the New Testament, as compared to less than a quarter of that number about verses talking about the believer being God's child. This shows us that there has been unbalance in this area. So yes, thank God that you are his child. However, thank Jesus that he's chosen you to be his slave especially when we see the way that he treats his slaves. And also remember that Jesus told his slaves, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is the true test of our love of the master. And so when we come before him this Thanksgiving, give thanks that he has provided for us, that he doesn't treat us like earthly masters. 
and that he also has given us this hope and this inheritance. In this life as we work, he has a great reward for us in our heavenly homes. And so right now, I encourage you, as you're slaving away out there, and for some of you, it feels like that, have hope, for God loves us so much. And Father, we give thanks to you, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you that you've called us as your slaves, Lord, your servants, to do your will, that you've set this task before us. Give us courage and encouragement as we face these challenges. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.